Hello, and welcome to episode four of JobsCast. I'd like to begin by telling you about an argument I got in recently with a friend of mine over the value of quantitative versus qualitative data. My friend was essentially taking the position that quantitative data is what matters most when it comes to understanding the human world. My view is that clearly they both matter, but what matters most when trying to understand humans is stories, and stories are tapestries of qualitative data. Now, quantitative data also tells a story, so there are at least two stories within every story. Let's take a corporation, for example. Imagine a make-believe corporation has enjoyed significant revenue increases for 10 years straight, and in each of those 10 years, a larger and larger percentage of workers at the company bemoan their working life for its endless hours, its stingy pay, its taskmaster management. But then imagine that those stories about employee working conditions get written off by HR as ungrateful gripes, and never once do they enjoy the polish of quantification. That is, the only story that is really made into a story is the quantifiable one, the one about the ever-improving bottom line of the company. What is up with this? Why is it that the story that seems to get told the most here is the one about bursting C-suite piggy banks and not the one about workers feeling trapped, depressed, unseen, unheard, and undervalued? Yes, we've all read articles about how terrible it seems to work at Amazon, yet somehow these articles ultimately function less as indictments than advertisements. People still apply in droves to experience the masochism that is working for a corporate behemoth like Amazon. I think that this irrationality, this willful acting against our own well-being, stems in part from our uncritical acceptance of what it means to be successful, which is an old problem in America. In a 1906 letter to H.G. Wells, William James writes of the moral flabbiness of the exclusive worship of success, and that the squalid cash interpretation put on the word success is our national disease. It's worth also noting the etymology of success here. The first part is derived from sub, meaning next to or after, and the second part is derived from sedere, to go or move. So success is about moving toward our desired end. Well, I think the desired end for the vast majority of people is to try to be happy and spread happiness, which means our 21st century notion of success is totally missing the mark. What if we stopped being so mindlessly competitive with ourselves and our neighbors? What if we started to value time over money? What if we celebrated people for being kind, caring, interesting, and interested, rather than well-adorned and garish Veblen goods? Whether or not you think it's a good idea to take me up on imagining these counterfactuals, you have to acknowledge how totalizing the allure of success is in the space of aspirational American living. We all know what the fast track is, and that it's actually a long, slow, laborious, and in many ways, pointless track. Kids' parents pay for the most expensive tutors to get them into the most elite schools, to get them interviews for the most lucrative professional positions so that they can buy large expensive things and show them to themselves and everyone around them so that the whole world knows they've done it, they've made it, they've succeeded. And again, all of this is assuming throughout the entire process that being financially successful is the be-all and end-all of existence. Well, let me tell you a little about today's guest, Anthony Tomasi. I think the societal gaze looks at someone like Anthony and among the myriad aspects of his life, settles on a few facts. That he has a certain type of accent, that he has worked in certain blue-collar jobs, and that he does not have a certain kind of education. And then that societal gaze concludes that this is not someone we are going to talk to or think about or make a movie about or write a book about, because, hey, let's be honest, it doesn't seem like he's that successful. This gaze has it all wrong. I find Anthony to be a highly successful person, one who we can all learn from, precisely because he is kind, caring, interesting, and interested. Toward the end of the podcast, I ask Anthony the hardest and simplest question. Who are you? You will be hard-pressed to find a better answer than the one he gives. I now present to you my conversation 
with gardener, musician, martial artist, graphic artist, husband, father, autodidact, custodian, laborer, Anthony Tomasi. Anthony, thanks for being a part of JobsCast. Thank you for having me today, Pat. So, Anthony, let's get right into the titular content here and talk about work and jobs. How would you describe your your relationship to work throughout your life? Why don't we start with the first job you remember having and go from there? Well, um, I'm quite used to it. I've worked my whole life. I've had to. Um, my first job, I would say I was probably 13 and I worked as a dishwasher three doors down at a little corner pub in my neighborhood and I was there for about a year and the owner sold the place and he told the new owners they were keeping it a pub and he said the kid in the kitchen comes with the deal so (laughs) (laughs) those brothers kept me (laughs) so in working in that pub do you who were your you know co-workers who were the people around you and how do you remember interacting with them uh, I was accepted well. I knew people because they were locals. Like I say, it was only three doors down from my house. Um, I think I was accepted and respected because I was there to work. Uh, my right. father always tried to instill a good work ethic. He said, you know, this isn't, uh, even though you're young, this isn't a game or time to play. You're there to show them what you can do and show them that you're useful and they they opened up avenues for me after a while, you know, I mean, shorthanded in the kitchen. They, hey, come here, kid, and they'd show me how to make something quick. This is how you prep this dish, and I need you to keep doing this. And, you know, so it's all in what you wanted to put into it. What was the next job you had after that one? I delivered uh, flyers for a local company that, you know, the flyers that everybody gets on Friday for shopping over the weekend delivered those for a while. I was a little older at the time. I think I was ending high school. And again, this was a place in my neighborhood they distributed uh, through the local cities. And I got the job through uh, a friend of mine who I was in a band with. His uncle managed the company. So Ron hired all of Eric's friends and and we did that. And, uh, you know, so that was just a quick little way for us as a group as well to make money. You know, just local things like that until I could obtain a real job after high school and stuff. I did all the usual things, working in corner stores and uh, pizza shop. What was the first job that you would describe as real? In high school, I studied graphic arts and uh, the printing industry. And I was fortunate enough, right out of high school, my graphic arts teacher knew somebody in uh, City Hall and there was a job opening for an in-house printer. So I was able to go right to work right out of high school. And this is City Hall where? In Malden, Massachusetts. What did that job involve? Well, it was actually, uh, it it wasn't for the city itself. There was a company in there called Life of Boston Insurance. They're no longer a company, but they were an insurance company. And I was just the in-house printer. I would print envelopes, business cards, uh, policies, all the paperwork, things of that nature, just everything that they would need day to day. What were the best and worst parts of that job? Well, um, it was a five minute walk from my house and um, my boss was very cool. Once I, you know, 
got settled in there, you know, we'd meet in the morning and go get breakfast and stuff. And, you know, and I, I'd always kind of be looking at my watch and he's like, what's the matter? I was like, well, it's, you know, eight o'clock. He's like, well, I know the boss. I assure you we're not getting in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) What was the breakfast arrangement? Where would you usually go to eat there? Oh, we would, uh, there was many little places right in Malden square. So we would go to, um, any small little breakfast place. There was a few, there was a, there was a supermarket that was called, uh, Mal's and they had a food counter like Woolworth's used to. So we'd, we'd go in there because that was one of the things that was open that early in the morning. Gotcha. So I know that you relocated from Massachusetts to New Hampshire. How does where you currently live uh, compared to this, this Malden of several decades ago? Well, I'll tell you, Pat, I always believed that I would grow old in my parents' house. Huh. Uh, it was in my family for... 80 years or so. And when my wife and I were getting ready to, you know, be married and start our plan in life, Malden had changed drastically. My wife grew up in Malden as well. And it used to be a, predominantly in my neighborhood, it was an Irish Italian neighborhood. Everybody knew everyone. And one of the biggest reasons we left was just how it was changing. The, the pub that I told you I worked at as a as a kid, three doors down, they shot and murdered a kid in his car over a drug deal that went bad right in that parking lot. And that's kind of when we knew that it was not the same city anymore. And we didn't want to try raising a family there. Who were the people uh, doing and receiving the bullets in that story? Well, whoever, however it went wrong, we, we were coming home. We were actually out to dinner and for a block in every direction was all shut down. You couldn't drive in with police tape and everything. So we parked and got out and walked. And I knew a couple of the officers growing up in that city. And I talked to one of them and he said, yeah, someone was murdered. And at that moment, we knew it was a a different city. How long would you say it took for you to acclimate to life in New Hampshire? About an hour. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know what to expect. You know, we packed everything up. We, we moved. And, um, I, by the time the two trucks were unloaded and I stepped outside and there was no more traffic, there were no trains. The T used to go by my house every 15 minutes. I knew that, that this was the right place. It was just very serene and, uh, you could hear nature, you know? Uh, describe for the alien who comes to Earth trying to understand the different the different regions uh, in the United States, what what New England is, what does the, the region of the U.S. of New England mean to you? And then well, more specifically, tell tell uh, tell our alien listener about uh, Massachusetts versus New Hampshire. Well, to our alien listeners, I would have to say, get back on your ship and go <laughs> home. <laughs> you made a mistake. Um, New England always did mean a lot to me. I I, um, enjoyed knowing that uh, this country started in Massachusetts and Boston, and we were very big on absorbing that history. You can't believe how many people have grown up here, lived here their whole life, and they've never done the Freedom Trail or gone to the USS Constitution or seen the Bunker Hill Monument. But um, I was always very interested in museums and things of that nature. So we, we took that all in, and it's very, very prideful. You know, it should be, because that's where this country started. 
I have to confess, I only just did the Freedom Trail three years ago, so I'd been here over a decade before I got there, but I did get there. And uh, you're right, it's it's interesting. I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, very close to the Poconos, and this is you know, a very famous, uh, beautiful, outdoor, mountainous uh, vacation area. And I, it was just the kind of thing where I was like, oh, I know it's there, but uh, I never really accessed it or went there. I think that sometimes, you know, you get you get used to having the things that you could go and enjoy sometime. But I think that's a good reminder to, you know, anyone, anyone listening who lives around here, it's, there's a lot of rich, beautiful, deep history to, to check out and enjoy and learn from. Absolutely. I find that, you know, I mean, a lot of people take things for granted, but we can connect this with the job thing, Pat, that I notice a lot. And, and it's happened myself as well. You, you go to a job, you, when you first get there, you, you try like hell, you're going to show them, you know, I'm the real deal. I'm the one that you, uh, you know, you should have hired. And then after a while, people get comfortable. And then right. after that, they get complacent. Right. You know? And, right. Uh, you know, you can see that. And I, I, I've witnessed, I'm not going to say that's never happened to me, because sometimes jobs are, a, it's a nowhere thing. I mean, I get the sense from from our you know first call offline that you're someone who has a lot of interests. I know our, our mutual friend Jay that you you played drums with him for a lot of years. You've had various jobs, and uh, to be honest, I'm I'm sort of more drawn to people like yourself because I think the people who have sort of had like etched in stone professional visions uh, laid out for them from a young age, the you know doctors, lawyers, engineers of the world. Uh, no knock on them. We we need those jobs, but but I think that there's just something about you know, the people who are incredibly clear on what they want to be from a very young age. Um, I'm almost like, <laughs> I don't know, like a little distrustful of the narrative or, or a little bit confused by it in the sense that in the sense that it's like, oh, you, you based your entire adult life on the dreams of a five year old. Like, I would rather figure things out as I go, as I mature, as I acquire more knowledge into my adulthood. I mean, I, I, I won't mince words when I say that I don't know what I want to be still. I'm in my 30s and I'm still figuring it out. So how about you? Uh, well, I'm guilty as charged, Pat. I just turned 51 last month and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But I don't think no. that this is a problem. I think it's actually I think it actually speaks to uh, curiosity and a willingness to keep learning. I, I have to be honest, though, you did hit it on the head. You know, you mentioned Jay and everything. I've played music since I was three. And I truly, like a million other kids, thought that I would be a professional musician. I wanted that so bad. I've, I've always studied music. I had formal teachers. Um, you know, the whole seeing, the, I didn't see it live, of course. It was before me. But seeing the Beatles, you know, land at JFK Airport and the mayhem that ensued, that was yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. You should all know me and have all of my albums that I never put out by now. But, uh, <laughs> just, it never came to fruition, but I'll also never give up on that because it's just a passion. I know at this point in my life, I certainly won't make a paycheck every week through being a professional musician, but it'll never stop me. Yeah, that's that's great. Jay, actually, our, our mutual friend mentioned that you were a fan of the Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner back in the day, and that you didn't realize that both of those bands had two drummers, which led to you developing a kind of wild style that Jay told me he could pick out anywhere. We could go off-piste and talk music for a little while. I don't, I don't see why not. So tell us 
about this uh, this drumming style that you cultivated for yourself? It was the Allman Brothers. The other band was the Grateful Dead, actually, not okay. Kennedy, but it was my older brothers that cued me in on that. I used to, you know, I'd come home every day from school and I'd practice, and that's that was my thing. And I'd be playing, and I'd, I'd get, you know, upset. I couldn't get this. I couldn't get that. I just can't figure this out. And they're laughing to themselves for the longest time. And maybe a year later, they were like, you know, we really got to let you know what one of your problems is. <laughs> they said, <laughs> uh, you know, the Grateful Dead has two drummers. Oh, wow. And, of course, I didn't believe them. Then they showed me a picture, and there's Bill Kreutzman and Mickey Hart. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense but i where i had done it so long i just developed an ear and a way to incorporate this dual rhythm and uh i consider myself an english version of phil collins i'm a left-handed singing drummer so that's incredibly cool we're very rare anybody jay included in has at some point sat behind my kit and been like, oh, let me try it. Go right ahead. And they're just lost because. Yeah, what is this world I'm in? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anybody that's been with me for a while and has stuck with that is now somewhat of a novice left-handed drummer. So in thinking about that ambition you had, seeing the Beatles, growing up with your brothers waiting a long time to tell you about the <laughs> dual drumming style that you were learning and and sounds like continually studying music as you said what would you say was the sort of i guess apex of your uh performance output i mean were were you and jay in a band were you ever like playing regularly or gigging regularly oh yes we um Jay and a, and a particular group of friends, we've had multiple bands. There's, there's a large circuit of friends that are musicians, and uh, it's nice because it's a pretty loose thing, and we come and go, and we've played um, at each other's parties and functions and things like that. And um, Never been on any big bills, but, you know, we, we have played out, and I'm still waiting for my Apex performance. Yeah, it's in the future. To this day, I mean, I'll find an opportunity to play with Jay or any number of our friends. Again, at this point in our life, it's just a it, it's a plus just to be able to be together and play now because we all have families and different lives. I think a lot about the the regret test, and I think about I, someone wrote a book about interviewing people who were who are on their deathbed, you know, elderly folks who who always say their biggest regret is not spending enough time with friends and family our culture is engineered in the opposite direction, right? Where we have all kinds of uh, encouragement to, to work ourselves to the ground and not get together and jam and play music with people. I, I think about uh, my time playing music with some of my roommates in Somerville. Similarly, we're, you know, never, never close to being like a, you know, headlining band or anything like that. Really just played a couple of house parties. But they're some of the best memories in my life already. Uh, they're amazing, amazing, amazing memories that, you know, there's no way to quantify the value of, you know, a thousand hours of working at some job to, to one hour of live music with your friends. It's, it's just really, really a special thing. Absolutely. I was uh, fortunate enough to get to see one of your videos just recently, and I was quite entertained. Uh, oh, nice. I know you being a musician, and I know we spoke before, I look forward to uh, getting a chance to make music with you. But you being I would a love musician... That know that feeling that that instant gratification um don't care about the money not doing it for the money because i know i'm not going to make any it usually costs more to put a show on the road for the day totally 
Totally. When you play and someone that's outside that circle enjoys what you've done, that's mission accomplished, you know. You, you've made them happy. You've, you've brought them up. You've got them high in a sense. And they're like, you know, that was awesome. Totally. I've also always felt that music is, you got to figure it's one of the healthiest, most organic highs around, right? You, you hear a song, you're utterly moved, feels all upside, no downside. I mean, I'm, I'm a unabashed musical junkie my whole life. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, don't seem to have lost my teeth or anything, maybe a little hearing damage, but seems, seems like a good thing to be addicted to music. Well, we know that it is very healthy. It involves, you can't have music or participate in music without all of the sciences. It has history. It has science. It has math. You need all those things. But I view music a little bit higher than that. I see music, Pat, as one of the last raw forms of magic Mm. on this planet. Because if... Music is a spell, and you cast that spell, and it and it either takes hold or it fails. Do I want these? You know, music can make you happy. It can make you sad, fall in love, hate, go to war. There's a song for every thought and emotion. It's are you talented enough to cast that spell and have it take hold? I love that. That's that's super interesting and, and totally spot on. It also makes me want to completely abandon the concept of jobs cast and just make this a musical podcast. For- <laughs> yeah, maybe we should just start our own music podcast, Anthony. <laughs> but we, we can get back to the job thing and then come, you know, you can call me back another time for the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. But I, I, I love that idea of spell casting. Uh, unfortunately, I think the professional world you know, isn't quite as alchemical or, or magical. Again, there's just so much pressure, I think, on, on people increasingly to to identify themselves vis-a-vis their work. And I just think it's too narrow of a container to accommodate a life. I think life is just so rich and multifaceted and, and has these transcendent experiences like like the musical ones we're talking about here. You've spent a number of years working as a custodian. What's a day in the life look like in that role? Well, I don't want to start this off by trash talking my place of business, but uh, it's like a lot of workplaces that people are perpetually stuck in. It could be a lot better. Um, Mm. I, I went there as a, as a temp. There was a person there. There was an older gentleman that was their custodian. He was going out on a medical leave. And uh, I got the opportunity. They called me up and said, oh, it's an eight-week gig. I said, okay, no problem. It's better than being unemployed. And I went, and uh, this guy walked me around, showed me everything, gave me these lists and how this is done and expected that. By the second or third day, I, you know, I, I was like, yeah, okay. I'm going to revamp this as soon as he's gone. I <laughs> threw that list over my shoulder and just started cleaning the place. You need, you needed a janitor. That's what I'm here to do. You know, it took me about two weeks to get the place in functioning order where I could run through the place basically within the day. And then I was able to, I got a routine down and the guy that I was answering to that was in charge of all the maintenance people seen me working and uh, I asked him, I said, Roy, do we have any paint? He said, yeah, well, for what for? I said, well, 
I'm trying to clean these walls, but they won't come clean. So I'd rather just paint them. He's like, you would paint the walls. I said, yeah. <laughs> a half an hour later, there was five gallon buckets of paint and all the utilities that I needed. He was thrilled <laughs> that I would actually do that. So so his, his assumption was that painting was beyond the scope of your duties in that role, which is why he sounds like he had a sort of jaw drop moment. Oh, you're going to do that for us? Yeah, he was thrilled because I showed him. I said, I'm trying to wash it. I'm just making it more dirty. This, It's a, it's a factory and these machines put out fumes and, and uh, oil vapor and things like that. So everything in that place is kind of gritty and sticky. You know, it's very it's a very right. tough atmosphere. And uh, so, yeah, I painted. And as time went on, you know, the getting closer to the eight week mark, I'm expecting the job to wind down. And about a week before the older gentleman came back, Roy came to me and said, um, you know, I really, really like the way you do things. You don't, you know, you know what you're doing. You take direction, you take initiative and just do things. Uh, if you want to stay, I'll go upstairs and make it happen. So I said, Sure, as opposed to going back to being unemployed. So um, he went upstairs, made it happen, and uh, I've been there for six years. Now, the gentleman came back, and he was like, yeah, hey, thanks, you did a great job, and was expecting me to leave. And I was like, um, no, they're keeping me on. And to both, <laughs> our, to both our surprise, Roy arranged it, and I was actually the lead guy, so that really put this gentleman out. But well, it sounds like you earned it. Well, I, I just you do what has to be done to make things right. If I'm trying to show them that I can do this, and I have to go beyond what you expect, I guess that's what's going to happen. Are you are you typically there for eight hours a day? I am. Um, it's, uh, I mean, they used to, the, the business has changed. They used to be unlimited over time, but, you know, who can do that? They have families and stuff, but it's an eight-hour day. Um, because of my situation at home, I think I mentioned to you, my wife and I have a, an autistic son, so someone kind of has to be home. Uh, my work schedule, I'm up at 1.30 in the morning. I leave oh, my wow. house. At, I leave my house at 2.00. I punch in at three and I work from 3 a.m. till 1130 in the morning. And then I come home because when uh, Kyle comes home from school, someone has to be here when the bus mm. comes. So and this place has always been very uh, good and flexible. That's one of the reasons I, I was really happy because I explained that to them in the beginning. And he said, yeah, we're pretty got a pretty loose policy as long as your work's done we don't care what time or how it happens so i kind of shaped my own program and they they don't have a problem with it so it's 2:30 right now in the afternoon on august 6th but 2:30 for you i guess feels like what 9 p.m. i mean what time do you yeah, usually go to bed about 8 o'clock i go upstairs at 8 i read for about a half an hour and when i've read the same line 3 times i know i'm done so you're only getting about 5 hours of sleep a night yeah wow and you're able to you feel like you have enough energy and get through the day like that well truth be told i mean i i would certainly take a cat nap every now and again sure. because i mean once i get home i'm still i'm i'm home for hours you know what i mean right crash out on the couch or something but generally i'm used to i'm used to going i i um to sleep late for me on the weekend pad is like five in the morning. Gee. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're, you still have many hours before everyone else gets up. 
Yeah, I've been up for about 12 hours now, but I still, you know, will make dinner and what have you. It's still still plenty of time in the day. What had you been doing, Anthony, before that role, and was it tough to adjust to that night schedule? Uh, I've always been used to weird hours because uh, one of my jobs, I was a union laborer in Boston, and the, the hours change all the time depending on the job or the company you work for. I worked on the big dig, and I worked overnights. I worked out at Logan Airport and worked all kinds of, you have to, the hours adapt to the job and what's going on. If there's a concrete pour that's starting at 3 a.m. and they're pouring for 18 hours, that's your day. (laughs) So uh, working on the big dig and then working as as a custodian, and then you also have this graphic arts background. I mean, these are skill sets that are fairly... Uh, disconnected and seem to involve a lot of learning. I mean, there's no way in hell that I could go and sign up to do a construction job right now. I don't have those skills. Uh, so so I'm, I'm impressed by the diverse skill set. How, how did you put yourself in a position to be ready to do all these different jobs? How did you learn the skills necessary? Well, it's really hands-on. I mean, not to, you know, make fun or anything, but you, you, you're obviously a, a well-educated young man. You've gone to college and what have you. I, I never had that that opportunity. Um, you know, my parents offered college, but they, they didn't really have any money. I didn't have any scholarships or anything like that. And when I first got out of high school, like every other kid, oh, what the hell are you talking about? I just went to school for 12 years. I don't want to go to college. Right, right. And about a year or so later, uh, I went back to my parents and was like, you know, college? And they were like, sorry, any monies that we were hoping to deal with is, you know, gone in another direction. I mean, I, I get that. But I, I don't believe that you couldn't uh, do that, Pat, because you're a young man. You're smart. If you were willing to work and pay attention and listen, you would be able to do that. The biggest thing on a construction site is paying attention so you don't end up killed. It's real yeah. easy to die, especially jobs like the big dig a Logan Airport, places like that. You get hurt or killed without trying. How would you describe this, the social aspects of those environments, of, those, of these different jobs we're talking about? Well, when I worked for construction, I'll tell you, I, I worked there for 10 years. And I met a lot of interesting people, a lot of people from all walks of life. I mean, regular people like myself, uh, con artists, alcoholics, <laughs> wow. drug addicts. You know, it's just all all walks of life, but mostly good people. But I looked at my um, trip through the construction world kind of like a prison sentence. I served my time. I learned my lessons and I'm not going back there again. It's a young man's job. What, what were some of the things that you're glad you're not experiencing in that job now? Well, just the the laborious acts. I mean, I was on a a chipping gun for three months, which is, you know, an an air-driven hammer grading walls. And, um, you know, that gets gets pretty tiring. And and, uh, concrete pours are pretty tough because once they start, you can't leave. It's always dirty. Porter John's, you know. Sitting on your lunchbox and eating out in the field in 90-degree weather or sub-degree weather, it's not an ideal situation, but they compensate you mm-hmm. with the pay rate. Right. It's interesting, Anthony, because I, 
I think about this work, custodial work, construction work. These are essential roles to, to keep the world spinning. I would be curious if we surveyed people, asked 100 people in the Boston area, say, okay, I'm going to say a word, first thing that comes to your mind. And if I said custodian, I said construction worker. I don't know if the first word would be essential. I think that should be the first word, but there is this implicit hierarchy that we're all aware of where you know, making the most money and being the most successful is something that a lot of people really covet and crave. Ha do you ever feel like you've been you know, talked down to or sort of condescended to uh, while on the job? Oh, unfortunately, yes. But I mean, you know, that happens in day to day life, too. And if you don't have thick skin, then don't go outside. <laughs> um, I have been I've been nose to nose with uh, heads of unions. And, you know, I mean, I don't care if you're another janitor or the president. And that stands with the company I'm with today. You'll get the respect that you have earned or deserve. Right. I will treat you the way I expect to be treated. I don't care who you are or how important you think you are. I'm right. here to do it. I'm here to do a job. And if you think you're going to belittle me, you know, then we're going to go round and round. Do you remember any specific situations that brought you nose to nose with people? Well, it's very tough when you're dealing with unions, you deal with stewards. And their job is to make sure that carpenters are doing carpentry work and the laborers aren't. And mm. electricians are doing electric. They're almost like cops on the job. You know, they, you, you stay inside your lines. And there have been many, many uh, times where, well, we were, we were working in a building with glazers, which are people that install glass, you know, giant windows and what have you. And there was a cot full of sheets of glass that I'm sure were very expensive because they were the size of doors. And we were just pushing the cot out of the way to bring things through. And the steward from the glazers jumped all over us and don't you dare touch that. That's not your material. That's not your work. This is so OK. We left it. We came back from coffee and this cart started rolling down a ramp and now i mean you're talking about hundreds of pounds of glass starting to you know roll down freely and the guy's standing at the top and he says grab that so this kid that was younger than me and very inexperienced goes to grab it oh no and i pulled him out of the way and i mean just for the sense of because i didn't want to see the kid hurt or killed it would have cut him in half you know so this crashes down at the bottom now, okay, thousands of dollars worth of glass mm -hmm. rolling. Now this guy's jumping up and down. What the <laughs> F is, what the F is the matter All with right. you people? I told you to grab that. So I got right up to him and said, we're laborers. We don't touch glass. You should have had your glazes grab yep. that. Now go pound it. Wow. Of course, my, my language was a little different at the time, but you know. <laughs> We were just trying to do something simple, and you wanted to be an asshole. Now you're yeah. in trouble, and you wanted us to help? Wrong. So the the rationale with the stewards, Anthony, is they, they want to just maintain billable hours associated with each person in their respective role? Exactly. I mean, it's it's like uh, they're, they're there to protect the people in their local. I mean, if carpenters keep doing labor's work, then they don't need as many of us, and eventually mm. they wouldn't need us at all. 
That's why laborers can't, well, we were just building a ladder or a box. You need a ladder or a box, you go see the carpenters and they build it. It's their job. And it's a general understanding. You know, I mean, as a laborer, they're paid very well. I don't know what the rate is now, Pat, but when, when I was finished, and this was in 2009, I was being paid $28 an hour plus my package. And that is the lowest paid in the unions because laborers oh, wow. are, are considered non-skilled. They don't have to go to a carpentry school or a plumber's school and earn a mastership, you know. So even though we were paid very well, we were the lowest on the rung. You look at uh, iron workers or people like that, and they're making 30 40 50 you know, depending on what they do. Heavy machinery operators, $70, $80 an hour. But we earned it. Right. Well, I'm glad you jumped in the way of that kid. I'm sure he he thanked you for that. Well, that's, I mean, my first reaction wasn't to be able to turn around and screw this guy. I I didn't want to see anybody hurt because no one was stopping that once it was coming down a a ramp. Right. Circling back to what you said a moment ago about me me being, quote, educated, you know, I I really do think not to be too self-negating, but... I, there is a there is a way in which I, I see you know the education I have I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and and, and yet I feel educated and unskilled and I, I really do think that you know the the quote educated track of course takes us into more white collar jobs as opposed to quote blue collar ones but I think I think what you said that you know I could perhaps learn construction uh, by you know paying close attention I think the same is equally true of quote un or undereducated people. I don't think that anything people do in offices wearing suits is, I think it's made to be more complicated than it often is. And I mean, I think finance is a classic example. I think they invent, you know, this incredibly dense, opaque jargon so that, uh, you know, they can move money around and get wealthy and prevent other people from doing it. But but I, I think at the end of the day that to me, it feels really important to honor you know, the intelligence that I think most people have. And I think that we, we tend to think that, oh, so, so-and-so is in this industry and that says this about their, their ability or their intelligence or their desire or whatever. And I, I just think those assumptions are often wrong. I mean, I, I'd love to have people do some kind of experiment where we could switch roles. Uh, you know, I, I think people are, are adept and, and able to learn. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I agree to a point. There are skill. I mean, to be honest, like I'm, I'm not computer savvy, and it, it took me a little while just to do something as simple as uh, installing Skype, so I could talk to you. Whereas a kid today wouldn't have thought twice about something like that. I was highly impressed at the young lady on your last podcast. This woman is a professor, uh, and it was very interesting. But honestly, about halfway through. I was lost because I wasn't in a a bankrupt situation. I understood what she was Mm -hmm. saying, but I mean, she got so deep. It was like, yeah, that's, that's just beyond me. (laughs) That's helpful feedback, Anthony, because part of the, part of the idea here is, is wondering about how, you know, these stories and language and research, you know, how well is it translating? I've been on both sides of the aisle too, having been lost about technical details. I want to, I know we're getting on here with time and, uh, couple other questions I wanted to get to. What's your definition of a waste of time versus time well spent? Well, I learned that there are really only two things you can do with time, Pat, and that is spend them or waste them. People think they can develop time, they can save time, they you can use it or waste it. But 
it, it all depends on the person, you know. I mean, if you go and put in your hard day's work and you've, you've earned your day's pay and you go home and you're safe, I'd say that's a job well done, whether it's a janitor or a policeman. You know, you didn't get shot. You didn't have to shoot anybody. That was a damn good day. Then there are people that they really don't care. It was important that they watched, let's say, you know, Jerry Springer, and they spent their whole day playing Candy Crush or whatever, and that's probably a good day to them. But, you know, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. I think so. I think there is a great deal of subjectivity. I was talking to some friends recently about video games and how much I enjoyed them growing up as a kid. And at some point about 10 years ago, I guess, after college, I just sort of uh, implicitly was was adopting this notion that video games were a waste of time, that you know I should be focusing on my career or whatever other thing to be productive. And I think at the end of the day, we can't forget about enjoyment and leisure. It's it's really important. I don't I don't think that there's anything, you know, inherently evil or bad in the forms of entertainment at our fingertips these days. I do think that they're designed to keep us there for longer than we often would like to be there. I mean, I think, you know, Facebook, for example, with its bottomless scroll, I feel like everyone who has a Facebook account has experienced this phenomenon where They've been scrolling and looking at information about people they don't care about for 45 minutes, and they think it's five minutes, but, you know, all that time has elapsed. But I don't know. I just think that, you know, we're in a time, especially acknowledging the broader context of, of this ongoing pandemic, where I think we it's really important for people to assess uh, what it means to spend time well. But how about you, Anthony? I mean, it sounds like you, you've always worked hard your whole life, and, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a musician. I mean... What are what are the ways that you lean into leisure time and really like enjoy time the most unrelated to work? There is it is quintessential to have downtime and rest the mind and and feed the soul, whether it's music or, you know, uh, okay, let's even say, you know, kids today, we know about video games and all that. They probably do it too much, but there's, there's nothing wrong with that at a at a point. But I mean. We love to read here. Our, our attic is basically a library. Um, we spend a lot of time in our yard gardening and enjoying that. Um, I pursue martial arts. I study kendo, which is Japanese sword fencing. So when I do have downtime, I still try and spend it as well as I can. But like I said before, too, I enjoy a good nap. I asked you, Anthony, about if anyone has talked down to you. Let's talk about the other direction. Are there people who you look up to? Um, yeah, I would say one of the biggest people that I look up to, Pat, I would have to say my wife. She just walked in. She's been one of the hottest working people I know. She came home from one job, and she's probably going to change and go to another one. She um, is nonstop, aside of being a wife and a mother. A wonderful person, my best friend. She, um, she's one of the people that I certainly look up to. I try and look up to anybody that has anything positive to offer. Jay, I, I don't truly know you deeply yet, but I look up to you. I admire you being able to do these things. I mean, Jay told me about your work aside of the podcast, and I think that's fantastic. Anybody that does anything to help someone 
teachers of special education. I, we've met so many great people that have helped our son along the way. And hats off to them because they never get the accolades they deserve. Teachers, um, specialists, paraprofessionals, uh, all these people are heroes to me. Then It's not football players and movie stars. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. And Anthony, let's just close with when you are asked, you know, you, you meet new people, whatever, you're at a party or you're asked to describe yourself. Someone, two questions. One, one might be a little more straightforward and the other uh, probably invites a, a rangier response. First question, if someone says, what do you do? You know, this, this classic American question, what do you do? Uh, and then the question that I'm much more interested in, if, if someone says in the deepest sense, who are you? How do you go about answering those two questions? Well, since I've worked at this place, when people say, what do I do? My general response to them, Pat, is I'm a zookeeper. <laughs> and I get a general laugh and they look at me and say, really? And then I explain myself a little deeper because there are some, you know, colorful characters and scenarios to this company that are really shameful. But <laughs> maybe that's another time for another podcast. But it's like a mucking horse stall sometimes. <laughs> but as far as answering who am I honestly I've never really been asked that question for now and um, I guess uh, I'm just a guy in this universe trying to make it to the other side without hurting too many people or things along the way you know I try and do uh, I try and do the right thing and, and add something positive to this universe and and we only have each other and we're not here for a long time. We're supposed to take care of each other. So I guess I'm just, uh, I, I try and be a, a, a positive force of energy in this, uh, in this world. Anthony, I, I think you're a, you're a bastion of, of wisdom and uh, kindness. And I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Any closing notes that you want to, you want to end on before we sign off today? Well, I have to thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm really excited about getting to meet you in person sometime, Pat. I'm very excited to hear more of these, and I am now going to be one of your new best fans. Oh, awesome, Anthony. Thanks so much for that. Uh, yeah, we will. This is this is definitely a, a to-be-continued scenario, so uh, be well, and thanks again, and we'll talk soon. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Pat. All right, Anthony. Have a good day. Take care. You too, sir. 